You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. Uh, If you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, we are in Luke chapter 16. My encouragement to you is that if you have a Bible... Or if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can find a Bible under the seat, one of the seats around you, to take it out uh, at some point. The words of, of Luke 16 will be on the screen, but we're going to be in here, and I want you to see some things in this passage surrounding this parable that we're gonna, I'm going to read for you, so it'll be good for you to have the Bible in front of you, and you can do that with your digital device as well. So. Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus In like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, or besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis said something, if you're wondering, who's C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote a whole bunch of books, Mere Christianity, he was a theologian, a Christian, he's with Jesus now, but he said something about hell that pretty much echoes the way I feel about hell. He said this, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord and his own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. You know, if there was, if there was one doctrine in the Bible that, that I could get rid of, the doctrine of hell would be great. Like, I, I don't like the doctrine of hell. I wrote a 35-page paper on it. It's there in the Bible. The Bible teaches it. I'm committed to it. I believe it exists. But it's difficult, and it's, and it's uncomfortable, right? Like, I don't know, I haven't met too many people that, like love the doctrine of, of hell or love the topic of hell. 
There are some people I came across, you know, in my studies as I was preparing this sermon that said some things about hell. Mark Twain said this. He said that, uh, this was his suggestion, go to heaven for the climate, hell for the company. The famous playwright Ben Johnson said this of hell. He said, uh, there is no greater hell than to be a prisoner of fear. Another person who you may recognize, Jerry Lee Lewis, said, I'm going, if I'm going to go to hell, I'm going there playing my piano. Oscar Wilde said, we are each our own devil and we make this world our hell. And then John Milton said, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. To which my response is, who cares what other people think about hell? What does Jesus have to say about it? So there is no way, I've said this already, there is no way I'm going to be able to unpack the whole doctrine of, uh, of hell in the Bible. But what I thought we would do is we'd just focus on what Jesus has to say about it. And then towards the end of the sermon, uh, I think you'll be encouraged. You know, so, so did Jesus believe in hell? Well, what I want you to do, and this is why it's important to, to look at this parable, I want us to just look at the parable for a little bit. I want you to see the context that this parable is, is in, like what, ha, what is said before the parable and what is said after the parable, because then I think it will make the parable of the rich man and Lazarus make a lot more sense to you. Here's what I want to say before we do that, though. What are parables? Parables are short, or short stories Jesus often used to communicate a larger point. So when it came to these short stories, often when Jesus told a short story, he, he's not necessarily giving you historical figures, like the characters in each of these parables are historical figures that existed. The point is, what is the parable pointing to? What is the main gist of it? What is the, what's the, what is the moral teaching of this, of this parable? That's the point. So I don't know if this rich man was a historical figure that Jesus had in mind, or if Lazarus was a historical figure that he had in mind. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to be confused with the Lazarus that was Jesus' friend and this Lazarus. This is a completely different Lazarus. This Lazarus is a, is a part of Jesus' parable. And, and so that's the, that's the parable. But there are, there are elements in this parable that line up with other things Jesus said about heaven and about hell. And so the things that he, that he says about heaven and, and hell here, I, I think we need to pay attention to because of the other things that he taught outside of the parables concerning those two places. So that's what I want to say at the beginning. So let's look at the context. Let's, let's just pick apart this, this parable for purposes I think you'll, you'll see towards the end of the, the sermon. Here's the thing about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man doesn't have a name. Lazarus, the poor man, has a name. The person who was considered important and affluent and had, you know, he was probably considered the who's who of, of his day, he's not named. But the one who nobody recognized, nobody paid attention to, everybody seemed to ignore except for the dogs, he has a name. The rich man is clothed with fine linen and purple. That's symbolic of uh, he was very, very wealthy. And we're told specifically by Jesus that he feasted sumptuously every day. His belly was full every day. Lazarus was not covered with fine linen and purple. 
But what did cover his body were sores. And he was hungry every day. And, and he was within view of the rich man's table because he longed for the scraps that would fall from the rich man's table. So, the, so Lazarus was within view of the rich man also. So that's the other thing that you need to, 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 to notice. And uh, he desired to be fed while the rich man fed himself. And ironically, the only creature in this story before Lazarus' death that paid attention to Lazarus were, were the dogs that licked his sores. And then they died. And that's the other interesting thing about this. They died. And they died about the same time. The rich man found himself in Hades where he was in torment. That is a picture of hell. Lazarus was brought up to Abraham's side, which is a metaphor, it's a metaphor of heaven. It's a picture of heaven. Here's the other interesting thing about this. As you read the story, and the poor man died, right, in verse 22, the rich man also having died, while in torment, turned his eyes upward, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. Here's the interesting thing. The rich man recognized who Abraham was. And he asked that if Lazarus could, could he dip the end of his finger in the water to cool his tongue, for he, is in, he said, I am in anguish in this flame. So when you think a drop of water from the tip of somebody's finger will ease your suffering, you're in a pretty bad place, right? And so, so the rich man is in a very bad place. He is in torment. And here's what, here's what uh, Abraham said. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in, in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in, you are in anguish. And then the story continues. And we'll pick up the story a little later. But so, so here's the other thing I want you to see. This is so important. Notice what happened, what's said before the parable. So what's said before the parable is in verse 13, if you're checking in your Bible here, uh, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And then in verse 14, we learn there are a group of people who were within earshot of Jesus' teaching. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Who did they ridicule? They ridiculed Jesus, right? And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's the context of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So, and, that, and it didn't even end there. In verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. And Paul, so Jesus makes this comment about the law and the prophets, something that the Pharisees prided themselves on. And then in verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, meaning you Pharisees not only love money, but you, you treat poorly those members in your own house, especially your spouse, your wife. And then he shares the parable. That's what's so interesting about this. So, 
the rich man assumed that he would go to heaven and lived his life on, on earth sumptuously uh, with, with great wealth while ignoring Lazarus, assuming that he would go to heaven because of his association with Abraham. I'm, I'm a religious man. I know who Abraham is. I am a Hebrew. I'm connected to Abraham. And so therefore, when I die, I will go to heaven. And then when he died, to his great horror and surprise, he was not in heaven. He was not at Abraham's side. Instead of him being at Abraham's side, it was Lazarus that was at Abraham's side. And, and here's the other thing I want you to hear before we move forward, and that is this. The rich man, do not make the mistake of assuming that the rich man was in hell because of the way he treated Lazarus. The rich man was in hell because he loved money more than he loved God. And had he loved God, he would have noticed Lazarus. Get it? Does it make sense? So, yeah, I just, it just opens up. Like, context is everything. Context, context, context. When you're reading a passage in the Bible, make sure you pay attention what came before it and what comes after it. Because if you do that, then it opens up a parable like this parable before your eyes. And there's so much here, which we do not have time to unpack entirely. But I just wanted you to see that. The rich man was in hell because he, uh, because he loved money more than he loved God. And, um, and Lazarus was in heaven. We're not told why he was in heaven. That's not the point. The point is that he was in heaven. And, uh, and, and, and the bigger point is the rich man assumed that he would get there and he didn't end up there. There's another passage in the, in the Bible that I want to point your attention to. It's in Matthew chapter 25, which is not a parable. Actually, Jesus tells, tells us about a judgment that's coming. And he likens this judgment to a judgment that there will be sheep on his, la on his right and there will be goats on his left. And, and, and the sheep, in this context, the sheep, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be a sheep. Sheep represent the people of God. Goats represent enemies of God or people who don't belong to God. And so he said, there's a judgment coming. There will be sheep on my right and there will be goats on my left. And he describes it this way in verse 34 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared, prepared for you uh, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the, the question of the sheep was, well, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? When were you naked and we clothed you? And Jesus said, will say to them, he'll say, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Meaning, if you truly love God, if you have a relationship with God, it will affect your relationship with you know, horizontally. So your vertical relationship with God will affect your horizontal relationships with others. That's the whole love God, love your neighbor thing, right? Um, but he goes on to say later on in Matthew 25, and I'll have the words on the screen here, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the, what? Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this, is a, this eternal fire is a place not just where the devil and the demons go, 
but also will be the place where the goats go. <laughs> For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into what? Eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this, the sermon, this, like the content of the sermon, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult before uh, we get to the whole good news part. But it's important to listen to the difficult stuff before we get to the good news. So did Jesus believe in hell? Yes. Jesus believed in hell. But what did Jesus believe about hell? What did Jesus say? Because here, here's what we assume. We assume Jesus talked all about love and all about heaven, but the reality is, is he spoke more about hell than he spoke about love and heaven. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. What did he come to seek and save the lost from? He came to seek and save the lost from hell. That's why we, he came to seek and save the lost from a wrath that the lost deserve. That's us. We deserve God's wrath. And he came to, to save us from that. And, and there are points in this parable that line up with what the Bible teaches about hell. Like this chasm. This chasm between heaven and hell is, is huge. Meaning you can't jump. You can't go from hell to heaven. Like once you're there, you're there. Uh, there is no purgatory. There is no praying you out of this middle place. You are, the Bible says, when you die, you face the judgment. You know, once, once you die, and then the judgment. And um, there's, I, I get into all the details of hell, like are there levels of hell in the paper? Not today. Um, are there different levels of punishment in hell? All that stuff I address in the paper. There's only five of them there, so first come, first serve. And then... Um, I can email them to you if you, if, if you really want a copy. But, but what did Jesus believe about hell? Like, what did he say about it? Like, the Bible says that, that in that place of suffering, all will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the chasm. And, and Jesus said this, so we're going to focus on most of what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Let's read this together. Ready? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is the him? It's God. I mean, some of you are like, Jesus. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the point is God. Do not, do not fear the person on earth who can take your life on this earth. Fear the one who can destroy both your body and soul in hell. Destroy like in what way? It's like an eternal destruction, which I'll get into um, in a minute. So let's go to the next slide. So, what is, so I'm not going I'm I'm to quote these verses. This is, you know, if you want to take your camera and take pictures of these verse references, you can. They're also in my paper. What else did Jesus say about hell? This is what he said. It's a place of torture. It's a place where the wicked are cut to pieces. Did he mean physically cut to pieces? No. The point is, it's horrible. And he used the most graphic language to describe a form of torture that he, that he could come up with. 
They're cut to pieces. It's a place of scourging. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Any of you have ever gnashed your teeth because you've been in so much pain? I, I have, right? Well, he says that place will be the experience of all who find themselves there, and in a place of utter or outer darkness, which um, to Mark Twain's great disappointment, <laughs> hell is not a place where you'll be aware of any company there. You will be only aware of yourself and the existence of, of this terrible agony that you are in. And, uh, and that's horrible. So not only did Jesus believe that hell would be a place of torment, he also talked about the fact that it is our sin that leads us to hell. Like, the result, the, the result of the, the place of hell is reserved for those who are guilty of sin. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, Jesus said this. Some of you are familiar with this because we spent a whole lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better that you enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And this is what he says about it. He quotes from Isaiah, by the way. He says, what is this hell? What, what is the experience like? What, is it, what does it feel like? He says, well, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched which is from Isaiah chapter 66. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies. So this is the way Isaiah ends. Uh, of the men who have rebelled against me. So this is the final judgment. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Um, hell is not the place you want to go. And when you, if you wind up there, it's, you're not going to be there with your buddies. I was tempted to share some clips from like Tom and Jerry cartoons, you know, of like that is not what hell is going to be like. It's horrible. And if one of the, uh, one of the submissions for this whole questionable series asks the question, uh, will hell be forever? Like, will it last forever and ever? Or will it be like a shelf life to hell? Will we... Will, will those who suffer in hell, will, will, they, will God just cause them to cease to exist? Well, Revelation chapter 14, verse 11 says this of hell. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It's not easy stuff. Which leads me to the, my, my application, and that is why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus believed that hell existed, and why does it matter what, what Jesus had to say about hell? Well, for starters, because it's real. And, and the, the, the sobering point about this, the, about this parable of the rich man is that, that maybe you're here and you're living like the rich man, like, like you're you're completely aware of right now and with no regard of what, what eternity will be like for your, for your soul. Like he lived sumptuously. He assumed he was getting to heaven because of his association with Abraham as a religious man. And he found himself in hell. And the other thing about this, why does it matter, is hell is severe because sin is serious. Serious. 
And there's some of you, and I don't have anybody in mind, this is just, just I've been a pastor long enough to say this, some of you take your, take your sins so lightly that, that it doesn't bother you what, where that sin may land you. The reality of hell is proof that God is both holy and good. See, some people look at the doctrine of hell like, I can't possibly, I cannot believe that God would send anybody to hell, and if there's a God who sends anybody to hell, then he must not be good, which is weird, right? When you, when you think about it, we have a tendency to, ju- to measure God's goodness with our, our level of goodness. And I think if any of us were honest in this room, you would say, you know, if I asked you, do you think you have work to do in terms of being good, being a good person? How many of you would raise your hand? Like, I, yeah. We all have work to do. Well, how is it that we, we feel the need or feel justified to measure the goodness of God based on, on what we think good is? Like what we do is, and this is, what, this is the danger, when we encounter something in the Bible we don't like, the danger is to do this. The danger is to take God and make him more like us. I don't like this about God, so I'm going to say this about God. And what we do is we take God who is the God of the Bible and we make him in our image. Instead of yielding our hearts to this God who calls us to be like him. And so... There are a bunch of verses in the Bible, like, like there, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in, in might, meaning there's nobody like him. Why? Because he's God. Let's go to the next verse, uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Let's read this together, ready? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Well, nobody's like you. Okay, this was part of a song that they sang after God delivered them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and He delivered them from for, through the Red Sea when He parted the sea. At the when they crossed the Red Sea, they sang this song. This was one of the lines in that song. You know, the problem with the doctrine of hell is not God, but us. Like the testimony of the Bible, the Holy Bible, is that we're the problem. We're alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, carrying out the desires of the body and, the, and of the mind. The Bible says there's none righteous. No one, not one understands. No one seeks God. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Like, we're the problem. Somebody said this about hell. They said, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Like we run from, like I said this, we run from God like a thief runs from a cop. Unless, unless we can make God in our own image. If we can make him in our image, in our own image, we're fine with him. But if we have to, if we have to like, yield to this God that we read about in the Bible, then, then like the doctrine of hell, we, we don't like so much. And here's the reality. Like the, the fact that hell exists demonstrates that God is as good as God can possibly get. He is good, he is love, he is grace, he is mercy, and he is holy and so much more, all in equal measure. You hear me say this a lot. This is a, I'm, I'm taking a very complex theological idea and reducing it to Shrek. Um, from, you know, Shrek. 
where Shrek in the movie, one of my favorite movies, he said he describes himself as an onion. I'm like an onion, and he and Donkey are having this conversation. And uh, and what do you mean by an onion? Well, I have layers. God doesn't have layers. God is perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly merciful, perfectly just, perfectly holy, all in equal measure. He doesn't have parts. And when it comes to him being good, he doesn't need to improve upon being good. Just like he doesn't need to improve upon being holy. We do. We do. And the existence of hell is a testament against the wickedness of man that we're the problem. There's this verse in Jeremiah, the Old Testament book, Jeremiah chapter 2. It says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed up out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is is Jeremiah describing here? He's describing kind of the scenario of the rich man. The rich man thought there was living in his sumptuous lifestyle, clothing himself in fine linen and purple, like that was living, that that's where life could be found, in this life alone. And, and I'll think about eternity when I get there. And, and we do that today in our day and age. We think, well, if I had the right job, that's living. If I had the right clothes, that's living. If I had the right relationship, that that's living, that, that that's where life is found. And Jeremiah says, this is the appalling thing about it. This is, a, this is the appalling thing, that a cistern, which would hold water in those days, so it would be, this, this cistern would be created and would gather water and, and you would collect the water for drinking water. If it was broken, it would become polluted by the dirt and whatever else surrounded it. And, and, and God is saying there, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the living water, the only cistern that holds water that will satisfy their thirsty soul. They traded me in for broken cisterns that are filled with polluted toilet water. And they're lapping from that. And it's poison and it's going it's to kill them. It's going to destroy them spiritually. And he said that, but that's what our world does. The rich man did that, and when he realized what he had done, it was already too late. He had already been judged, and he, was in, he found himself in Hades where his torment was so severe that he longed just for a drop of water. Now here's, here's where the, this whole thing gets, becomes good news because Jesus, who said some really, he used very strong language to describe a hell that he had absolute authority to describe, right? And uh, it is this Jesus who spoke so severely about hell is the one who went to a cross for your sins and my sins so that we wouldn't have to go there. Right? Like we've just spent like Good Friday and then, and then Resurrection Sunday, like which was this past Sunday, like we, we, meditating and thinking about that and, and, and celebrating that. Why did he do it? Well, he did it so that we would be redeemed. He, he, he went to a cross and, 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 and died under the wrath of God for your sins and for my sins, was buried on the third day, or no, was buried and on the third day he rose from the grave and he, he validating everything that he claimed to be. Like, why, why do you think he was in the garden staring at that metaphorical cup, which was a metaphor of God's wrath, and he said, if it's your will, Father, may this cup pass from me, but not your will, or not my will, your will be done. 
Like, I'm willing to drink this cup. Every last drop of this cup of your wrath I will, I will drink. He was sweating great drops of blood because Jesus understood the reality of hell. Jesus understood the reality of the wrath of God that we all deserve, and he was willing to endure that, and he did. He went on a cross, and it wasn't just the pain of the cross that he endured. He endured the wrath of God being poured upon him. And so Jesus said this in John chapter 3. I mean, you're familiar with John 3.16, right? But let's, let's consider the, John 3.16 in its context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not, what, brothers and sisters? Perish. Perish from what? Perish in hell. But have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is what? Not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's continue. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were what? Evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it, is, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Like Jesus said this. Why did God, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, this is what Jesus did on our account. He did this so that hell would not have to be our reality. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the what? Righteousness of God. If you minimize the doctrine of hell, you minimize the beauty and majesty of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that he was buried, and then on the third day he rose from the grave. Like, that's what was at stake. He saved us from our sins. And, and back to the whole rich man Lazarus thing. So, so back in the parable, so, what, what was, so, so here the rich man found himself. He was, in a, he was in this horrible place. He wanted just one drop of water to soothe his torment, discovered that's not a possibility, and so he asked for the next best thing. He, he, he asked this, uh, can you send Lazarus to my, to my brothers, my five brothers, so that they don't wind up in the same place that I'm finding myself in today. Can you, can you do that for me, Abraham? And, and Abraham says, look, they, they, they have enough. They have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets, and they can listen to them. So, so you know, you have Isaiah 53, talks about the suffering servant. You have... You have Exodus chapter 15 talks about the holiness of God. They have Moses and the prophets. And then notice here, remember, the Pharisees are listening to this parable as Jesus is telling it. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Who rose from the dead? Jesus. Who didn't believe he rose from the dead? The Pharisees. 
We live our lives in such a way thinking, ah, I have enough time, I have enough time. Man, Tuesday was, was a reminder that you do not have enough time. I mean, we had, I don't know, I, I, my guess is 300 people in here. 75 people standing in the back, maybe more. Every seat taken to celebrate Andon's life and um, share the gospel, you know, during that time, as I do at every funeral that I officiate. And I told him, I said, you know, here's the hard thing about Andon's life. I had three points. I said, I want to say something that honors Andon's life, and I just shared a bunch of things that were submitted, statements that were submitted by family. And I said, I want to say something difficult in you know, concerning Andon's life. And that difficult thing concerning Andon's life is he thought he had his whole life in front, uh, ahead of him. And he got in a car, and he drove, and he crashed, and they found his body 5.30 in the morning. Like two Wednesdays or three Wednesdays ago. Like, that's difficult. And what's more difficult is that, that if you don't, if you don't know who this Jesus is, that he lived this life that you can never live, and he died on a, on a cross for your sins, and then on, the, on the third day he rose from the grave, that, that you will spend eternity in hell. Judgment for your sin. Like, that's reality. And this rich man thought he had his whole life ahead of him, and he died. And there are you, those of you in this room and watching the live stream, you think you have the, your whole life ahead of you. Some of you are like, I've had my whole life ahead of me, now it's behind me. <laughs> the reality is, is that, you know, hell is a reality because sin is serious. So what are you going to do with the time that you have? What are you going to do with the time that you have? The death of Jesus is a picture of the ugliness and seriousness of our sin. It is also proof that God loves sinners. It's possible that maybe you're here and you're still trivializing sin. You just don't take it serious enough. And like today, I think the warning of this parable and everything that Jesus said is you need to take it serious. You need to take it serious. There, there's a reality that is eternal, that is... That is horrible. And then for most of us in this room, you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. You have a relationship with him, and you're exempt from, from this torment that's, that, that, that we're all going to experience. And Larry, you can come up. Um, the, you, the, we're exempt from this torment that, that mankind is destined to experience apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. But are you living your life in light of the reality that there is a hell and that it is the sins of people that send them there? Like, that's the reality. Like, for God, like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I was, I was thinking of this this week, and I shared this in the e-letter. If you have the choice to send your child to, to Christian school, you know, great. If, if it, if you have the choice to be able to homeschool your child, okay, that's, that's wonderful too. If, um, if your child has to go to public school or if you choose for your ch child to go to public school, that's fine also. 
we chose that our children would go to public school, both our oldest and our youngest, and for, for reasons, practical reasons, and some other reasons, which I don't have time to get into, but here, here's, I heard something said by somebody this week that really struck me, and it didn't surprise me, it just struck me, because I hadn't, I'd not heard it said this way. So if you're sending your child to public school, you're sending them to institutions that are, that are, you know, that, that hate God. Now, not the teachers. I'm not saying the teachers hate God. I'm just, you're, there's a system that's pushing an agenda. <clears throat> and uh, I know that. I was, on, I was on a school board for a charter school in Colorado. I, I know all the details that go involved with curriculum and all that stuff. But here, here's the thing. When it comes to our families and when it comes to the people we engage in life, if we understand that hell is a reality and that there's a system that would love to see generations go to hell, um, you will invest your time in the lives of your children so that they don't go there. What I mean by that is this. Discipleship, that is, like Jesus said, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and he didn't stop there. He said, teaching them all that I have taught you, basically, is what he said. That the way that I can guard my son, the hearts of my children, the best way I can do that is invest in their lives. To mentor them. To disciple them. Seth and I are going through the book of Revelation right now. As his choice, I'm like okay, <laughs> we'll do it. Nathan and uh, some of, a few other young adults, uh, we meet after church around four o'clock on Sundays, and we're going through Ephesians together. Why do I do that? Because hell is a reality. That's why. And we need to be investing in our children's lives. Discipleship begins in the home, and the way we live our lives today matters. It matters. People are watching. Our children are watching. What are you doing with your life? How are you spending it? How are you investing in, in the lives of those around you? That's, I think, that's the takeaway from, from Luke chapter 16. Randy Alcorn said this. He said, for those, and you, some of you heard me say this, and this so, this so applies to the rich man and uh, Lazarus. He said, uh, for the, for the, for the non-Christian... For the non-Christian, the closest thing that they will ever come to experiencing heaven is life on earth. For the Christian, for the Christian, the closest thing you will ever come to experiencing hell is life on earth. That puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.